Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's episode, we are going to talk about an intersex plaintiff and their fight for an accurate passport, the fight for justice for same-sex couples seeking Social Security survivor benefits, and yet another case involving anti-LGBT discrimination in foster care. With us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. Art, how are you? Okay. Happy Pride. Happy Pride to you. Yeah. An awful lot of uh, Pride events on Zoom this month. Right, yeah. <laughs> no, the Gals programming is all on Zoom. We're talking with uh, Kate Kendall and Rhea Tobacco Mar of the uh, ACLU this next Wednesday. Should be fun. Yeah, and I understand uh, we're recording this on uh, July 13th. And the Supreme Court has announced two opinion days next week, Monday and Thursday. Okay. So the possibility of our Title VII cases coming out by the time people are seeing or listening to this podcast. I say seeing because we're doing it on Zoom, so I see you. Right, I see you. <laughs> Maybe we should release a, a video. We should Zoom it out to them. <laughs> yeah. Join us on YouTube for a live chat. Um, people are getting so sick of us telling you, telling people, okay, it's coming out soon. We tell you by the next time we'll probably be discussing and it just, we keep waiting well, and waiting and we've got nothing. I mean, we almost, never almost certainly for the July issue of Law Notes, we will have these cases. Oh, Although they did run uh, several, uh, several oral, oral arguments by telephone early in May, which was later than they usually hold hearings. So it's possible that they're going to extend the ending of the term into July. Yeah. But okay. uh, my, this is my fantasy. My fantasy is that the opinion we're going to win, it's been assigned to Justice Kagan. And being a real sentimentalist on this kind of stuff, she says, and we've got to do it on June 26th, so it'll be the same date as Lawrence v. Texas <laughs> and Windsor and Obergefell. <laughs> oh, you That's think my Justice dream. Kennedy still has an ear to one of the conservative justices, maybe the chief, and is saying, please release this on the 26th? <laughs> well, Gorsuch clerked for him. So. Right. Come on. They're surely having dinner. I think Kavanaugh clerked for him. Oh, God. It's, they're all uh, Kennedy. Yeah, there was that news report that Kennedy maybe put in a word for, you know, please replace me with Kavanaugh or something like that. Um, before we get into the actual substance, on uh, yesterday, June, June 12th, uh, it was the anniversary of the Pulse Massacre. It's right in the middle of Pride, and the Trump administration announced a finalized rule that wipes out health care protections for transgender people under Section 1557 of the ACA. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there, Art? Yeah, this is actually a, a proposed regulation that they floated a year ago. So it's been around a while. It, it attracted a storm of adverse comments, but of course they don't care. Right. Uh, and so the final that they put out, they said, uh, is not very different from the original. And, you know, if, it's like they're trying to hide what they're doing. If you look at the formal notice that they put out, it doesn't mention this. Oh. <laughs> you know, but the press all picked up on it. The big headlines are wiping out coverage from transgender. It almost puts in the shade that it also wipes out uh, the requirement uh, to uh, provide birth control. Oh. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just one more Trump administration horror show, you know. Indeed. And uh, to the extent that courts, uh, courts have been interpreting 
the ACA, you know, interpreting the statute to require uh, that they not discriminate against people based on gender identity. Uh, and we have decisions relying on that section 1557 of the ACA to order states to cover uh, transitional surgery for state employees who are transgender. So, you know, we've got a body of case law that's been building up on this. Yeah. So the fact that they uh, changed the regulation, they're basically withdrawing an Obama administration uh, ruling and replacing it with this regulation. Uh, that doesn't necessarily affect how the court's going to do it because okay. the courts can decide. And I believe H HRC immediately filed uh, a challenge to it in the courts. Right. Uh, you know, they have a new project, Human Rights Campaign. They're going to start filing litigation. Okay. Uh, so uh, they, they filed the lawsuit immediately claiming that it's not a correct interpretation of the statute. Of course, that hinges on how we do in the Title VII cases. Oh, sure. I mean, if we win Harris Funeral Homes, then we've got the argument. Yep. If we lose Harris Funeral Homes, then, you know, forget the ACA unless we can get an amendment to it that adds sexual right. orientation. And that's what you've been saying, you know, from the beginning when we talk about the Title VII cases of just how broad the scope will be if if we get a bad decision that it'll just trickle right. down through all of, all of it. The will, it will affect any federal statute or regulation that involves sex discrimination. All right. Well, we've got a lot to discuss, so um, let's see if we can't give a few positive updates as we go through uh, some really interesting cases that we have in the June edition of Law Notes. In May, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit rejected several reasons that were given by the State Department for denying an accurate passport to Dana Zim. Dana is a non-binary and intersex U.S. Navy veteran who does not identify as male or female. Uh, frustratingly, the ruling was not definitive. However, the court did note that forcing non-binary intersex individuals like Dana to pick M or F on a gender marker in a passport application injects inaccuracy into the data. Art, tell us about this opinion in the ongoing Zim uh, litigation. All right, well, this is a case that's been dragging on for quite a while. Uh, yeah. uh, Dana Zim applied for a passport back during the Obama administration. The original defendant in this litigation was Secretary of State John Kerry. Mm -hmm. I mean, now it's called Zim versus Pompeo. Right. And uh, there were other names in there, as you recall. <laughs> but uh, the, the problem is uh, that under the Administrative Procedure Act, when an agency adopts a substantive interpretation uh, that, that is the equivalent of a regulation, actually, uh, they are supposed to have some objective uh, justification for it, uh, especially if uh, there is, uh, you know, nothing in the statute that really addresses it directly. I mean, the, uh, the passport statute basically authorizes the State Department to establish the forms and decide what information to put on a passport. Uh, it does, I don't believe the statute even requires that someone's uh, sex be indicated on a passport. This is something that administratively the State Department decided to do. And they didn't even include that uh, until uh, about 40 years ago or something. There was a long period of time when there was no sex indication on US passports. They went with the photo and the name. 
they decided to do that uh, partly because there are international understandings about what should be on passports because they're used for international travel and stuff like that. Uh, so the interesting thing here is that we are behind uh, many other countries now, uh, at least 10 uh, that were mentioned in the opinion, that allow uh, someone who is non-binary or intersex to select X instead of M or F on their passport. And the uh, international system uh, that's been set up by the yeah, International Air Transportation uh, Convention that uh, everyone is parties to uh, allows for that. Uh, they're not going to reject a passport uh, at a country of entry because it has an X on it, because it's becoming understood that that's what it stands for. Mm -hmm. But the reaction of the State Department here was just no. I mean, without explanation at the beginning. Uh, Zim provided a letter explaining why they did not check M or F on the application. You know, there's a box to check. Sure. So, so uh, they sent a letter. They sent a letter from physician confirming that they are not binary. Uh, it turns out that uh, you're required to present some government form of identification when you submit for you're supposed to require, uh, present a birth certificate showing that you're a natural born U.S. citizen, you're entitled to a passport, uh, you uh, present a driver's license or something like, like that. Now, the driver's license was issued uh, before Zim had claimed their uh, non-binary identity, so identified Zim as female. Okay. Uh, so the response of the State Department was, uh, we can't give you an X because our system doesn't include that. <laughs> You know, everything is computerized these days. They, we have our software, you know, we have our standard forms. You've got to be an F or an M. You can't just leave the box blank. And uh, so they offered uh, Zim three options. One is, we'll go with your driver's license and identify you as female. Or if you present a letter from a doctor certifying that you've transitioned to male, we'll let you do M. <laughs> but if you won't do either, we will not process your application. You just would have to withdraw it. Uh, so Zim filed suit against uh, then the Obama administration, against uh, Secretary Kerry. And uh, over a series of opinions and rulings on motions, the district judge, in this case, R. Brooke Jackson of the U.S. District Court in Colorado, uh, basically without reaching the constitutional claims, because there are potential constitutional claims here. There is a good argument under Lawrence versus Texas, under some of the language used by Justice Kennedy in that opinion, that a person's right to claim their identity should include the right to claim a non-binary gender identity, or a transgender identity for that matter. Uh, Justice Kennedy recognized as constitutionally based the right to claim a sexual orientation, different from the majority. Uh, this is part of your self-definition. Uh, this is the language that Justice Scalia liked to ridicule in his dissenting opinions as the Ah, Sweet Mystery of Life passage, which originated in Kennedy's portion of the Casey decision on uh, abortion way back in the 90s. Um, so Horribles. Yeah. So, uh, so in this case, uh, Judge Jackson came around to the view that they can't just say no, they have to have a reason that under the Administrative Procedure Act, if they're going to interpret the statute in a particular way, they have to have a reason for it. 
And Judge Jackson was not persuaded by the reasons articulated by the State Department, by any of them. Now, uh, and you covered this for long as you wrote the article. Uh, there were like four or five reasons articulated and uh, the Tenth Circuit said several of them just don't fly. We don't, we don't see them. Uh, maybe you want to go into some of those. No, please. You do such a good <laughs> job of, <laughs> and, and I pretend like, oh, really? I'm so surprised. Um, yeah. yeah, no, uh, please go ahead. Well, uh, the, the first reason that uh, the Tenth Circuit... What did I uh, say? <laughs> what what you, you questioned, that the binary sex policy ensured the accuracy and reliability of passports. And you said, well, you know, how is it, re how is it accurate or reliable to identify Zim as male or female when Zim doesn't identify as male or female? Right. Uh, this assumes, of course, that you accept the proposition that there are non-binary people and that Zim is genuinely a non-binary person. Now, Zim has presented documentation uh, from a healthcare provider that they are non-binary and we're using the preferred pronouns that non-binary people or they them instead of he or she because they don't identify with he or she right uh, the they they did accept the idea that perhaps the State Department has sort of a justification in that their electronic information systems talk with other electronic information systems like from states and right. police departments and stuff like that national security stuff and they all have gender as one of the identifying characteristics of a person uh so to, to the, in that extent there there may be something uh but uh the department argued that listing a sex other than male or female would hamper verification of an applicant's identity but the court agreed with Zim that consistency between inaccurate identification documents does not render them more accurate or reliable. Yeah. Uh, every, and, every, every database has, has it wrong. So that yeah, makes it and, more accurate. And, and they said, given the State Department's willingness to allow Zim to identify as either male or female on the passport, the binary sex policy that they've adopted sunders the accuracy and reliability of information on the passport application. Yeah. Because Zim is being required to identify with a gender with which he doesn't, he or she doesn't identify. Well, not even right. he or she, they hey. don't and, identify. And one interesting wrinkle is that um, Colorado went back and amended the driver's license after right. Zim asked um, or sued, one of the two, and, um, and issued an X on the driver's license. Right. So, to the extent that there's they're they're talking to the states and trying to you know have some continuity that kind of undermines that argument there right another argument that the the state department advanced uh they said the medical community lacks a consensus on how to determine whether someone is intersex so the x designation is unreliable as a component of identity the court says even if the medical community disagrees the State Department needs to explain why the lack of a consensus was justified denying Zim's application. They just, you know, state the medical profession disagrees, therefore we can't do it. Well, yeah. why? Why can't you do it? Uh, and finally, they say the required time and expense of readjusting all our systems to accommodate it. And the court says, well, you have yet to give us any information about what it would cost. And furthermore, Zim's counsel submitted uh, material from Colorado, for example, which was willing to issue the new driver's license. They said it didn't cost us a lot of money to make the adjustment. It's just, you know, every now and then you revise your documents and uh, you pay your IT people 
or your consultant, and they come in and they do it. Right. So you do it. You only have to do it once. Once you've done it, it's there. Yeah. Uh, and we don't know how many non-binary people are going to be applying for passports and asking for the X. It's probably a reasonably small number. Uh, the department says, well, since it's going to be a small number, we shouldn't have to spend a lot of money to change it. Well, prove to us that it's a lot of money. Sure. Wow. So now what happens? Uh, to this so, so, well, they sent it back. Okay. Uh, you know, I, it would have been great if they just affirmed Judge Jackson's decision and right. enforced his order. But they said, we want to give the department one more shot at responding to our uh, questions about what justification you have here. I have a feeling that if this plays out long enough and Joe Biden is elected, becomes the, the candidate and is elected in the fall and a Democratic <laughs> administration comes in, a, a little bit of education and lobbying will get the new State Department leadership to say, okay, we're going to do this. Right. And, and the sense. same thing with the ACA regulation going back into place. Right. You know, and the same thing with the transgender military policy. I mean, we didn't select this as one of our stories, but this issue of Law Notes has several more discovery rulings by Judge Peckman in the Karnowski case. Okay. They're still fighting back and forth about privilege, you know, on the, on the information. So that's going to stretch out. Well, we'll we'll continue to update people, but let's... Uh, Let's move on because we have so much to get to. Right. We've gotten to so much already that was like not planned for us to discuss, but there's so many developments. Right. Um, all right, so let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Unconstitutional marriage bans, which prevented same-sex couples from getting legally married, also had the result of denying these couples access to Social Security survivor benefits. This case that we're going to talk about next is about that post-Windsor and Obergefell fight to get some justice for surviving spouses. Art, talk to us about the case uh, from this month's Actually, three cases this month's law notes. Uh, there are uh, lawsuits, two lawsuits in Arizona and a lawsuit. But you're condensing the, them into one. State of we're just highlighting well, one, right? <laughs> we, we can't really because they all, you know, they have different things. Uh, Lambda Legal is on uh, two of them. Okay. Lambda Legal is trying to bring class actions on this. Okay. Uh, but there's also a pro se litigant from Arizona representing himself, and he got the first merits ruling from a district judge wow. working on his own. But uh, the interesting thing here is uh, under the Social Security Act, if a married recipient of Social Security benefits dies, leaving a surviving spouse, the surviving spouse is entitled to a death benefit, a lump sum payment of you know, $300. But they're also, if they're not receiving Social Security benefits, they're entitled to keep receiving their deceased spouse's benefits for the rest of their life. And if they were receiving benefits and their spouse was receiving higher benefits, because the spouse was a higher uh, wage earner, they're entitled to the higher amount. Uh, but the, uh, the uh, eligibility for the lump sum depends on having been married at the time that the spouse dies. Yeah. The eligibility for the widower's pension hinges on having been married for at least nine months. And it used to be longer, it used to be a year, uh, when when the uh, Social Security Act was first passed, it was a substantially longer period. They were really afraid that what's going to happen is people who go shopping for dying single people so that they can marry so they can inherit their uh, widow's benefits, uh, not so that they can have a marriage. Uh, so the, to, to deter that, they said you have to be married for a certain period of time, and the most recent amendment reduced it to nine months. Okay, so what about people 
who married as soon as it became available. And then the survivor died in less than nine months. And they would have married earlier if it had been available to them. Right. But, you know, and, and the court is going to have to determine whether that's the case. But so what we have here is we have pending two potential national class actions. One is for people who got married as soon as they could after it became legal, but then one partner died within nine months. The other is people who didn't marry because it wasn't available to them and the partner died and uh, they filed and they were turned down because they weren't married. Yeah. But they would have married if they could have married. And right. they've got lots of strong evidence that maybe they, you know, they did commitment ceremonies, they exchanged rings, they merged finances, they lived together for decades, etc. They were, except for like the artificial distinction of not having a marriage license, they're right. just like a married couple. Uh, and so uh, Lambda has these two cases going on. The one in the state of Washington is the broader one, uh, looking for uh, uh, survivor's benefits for people who didn't get to tie the knot. Uh, but that one, requires that somebody file, that the surviving spouse file. They have to have filed for it and been turned down to wow. be in that class. And the problem in that case for the state of Washington, that's the Thornton case, uh, the judge is holding up on certifying the class because he's looking for uh, some kind of reliable estimate of the number of people who might be affected because in order to certify a class, you have to find that uh, there are too many potential plaintiffs to join them individually. There has to be a need for a class. And he said, I'm not persuaded yet uh, as to the number of people who are potential uh, recipients here. On the Arizona case, that's just dealing with the nine-month issue because the plaintiff in that case and his partner married less than nine months before the guy died. Uh, I mean, I think, I think that came out wrong. <laughs> but at any rate, they, they got married and the guy died uh, less than nine months later. Uh, and uh, in, in that case, in fact, uh, the parties agreed to let a magistrate judge decide the case. Uh, this is the one that was seeking class certification that Lambda brought in Arizona. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the magistrate judge granted the class action based on a study that was done by the Williams Institute uh, that said, you know, we can, based on population statistics and marriage data that's been coming in, we can estimate for you the size of the potential class and our estimate, based on our calculations, is that approximately 400 couples who married uh, when it became available and one of them died before uh, nine months had gone by. Uh, so we can say that the potential class is approximately 400, give or take. Mm. And the judge said, well, that's fine because the rule of thumb is 40. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, so, so the judge certified the class as a magistrate judge. And then the magistrate went to address the issue, the substantive issue, and said it seems pretty clear uh, after the uh, the Windsor and Obergefell cases, it seems pretty clear that there's a real equal protection problem here with Social Security not paying the benefits here because these people were prevented by unlawful state laws. You see, under the Social Security Act, the decision whether someone is married depends upon the law of the domicile where they died. 
And since the law of the domicile where they died didn't allow them to get married and unconstitutionally didn't allow them to get married. Right. In violation of the 14th Amendment for Social Security to rely on an unconstitutional state law to deny the benefit is unconstitutional, obviously. Right. Uh, or at least, you know, the, the, the magistrate accepted the argument. Uh, and uh, so the magistrate ordered that the same-sex couple in that case an Arizona couple, uh, the surviving uh, spouse, is to get the benefits. All that's left to be done is to remand it to the agency to calculate what they're entitled to, especially in terms of back benefits at the time they applied and turned down. Uh, and they gave uh, examples uh, in the opinion of two other potential class members who were described, one of whom has a very familiar name to all of you, James Obergefell. Uh, the lead uh, petitioner in Obergefell versus Hodges, our marriage equality case. Uh, and you remember the dramatic story. Uh, James Obergefell and John Arthur were a longtime couple, had been together for decades. Arthur was dying. Uh, and uh, when the Windsor case was decided, uh, if you recall back to uh, 2013, at that point we had marriage equality in quite a few states, but not Ohio, which is where they lived. Uh, but after Windsor, Obergefell looked at that and asked around to uh, found a lawyer in uh, Cincinnati who was willing to help them, who said, well, under the reasoning of uh, the Windsor case, we think we could persuade a court, uh, a federal court here in Ohio, that Ohio would have to recognize an out-of-state marriage. So if you can find a way to go to take John out of state to get married and come back, uh, because their goal was not to get Social Security benefits. I don't think that was on their agenda. Their goal was to have Obergefell listed as a surviving spouse on the death certificate. You know, he, he had uh, ALS. It was in its end stages. Uh, the prognosis was it was a matter of months at that point. They hired a medical jet and flew from Cincinnati to Baltimore because Maryland already had marriage equality. They got married right there at the airport. He didn't have to get off the plane. And the marriage celebrant came on the plane. They had gotten... Uh, it seemed that it was, it was possible to get a marriage license without both of them appearing in person at the clerk's office to get the license. Uh, so they arranged everything. They got married. They flew back. And uh, while uh, John Arthur was still alive, Obergefell filed his action in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Ohio, asking for an order in advance that the state be required to recognize the marriage. And uh, that was our first substantive uh, ruling for marriage equality after Windsor. Yeah. Basically, the uh, federal district court decision in, in uh, July of uh, 2013, uh, giving a preliminary injunction. And so when Arthur did pass away, uh, although the state was appealing, they ended up having to give him a death certificate listing Obergefell as a surviving spouse. But because Arthur died very shortly after the marriage, doesn't meet the nine months rule. So Obergefell is a potential, and I believe he did file uh, in order to be a member of this class, he has to have actually filed for survivor's benefits and been turned down. Uh, so he is a potential class member here. And obviously for each class member, they're going to have to make a determination, uh, you know, uh, of the, the timing and everything and the amounts and all this sort of thing. Uh, the proof issues are going to be much tougher in the uh, Lambda case uh, from the Thornton case from the state of Washington. Uh, because those are the people who didn't marry, but who would have if marriage had been available. Right. 
and uh, marriage did not become available in their jurisdiction. One of the complicating factors here is that effective in 2013, when several provinces in Canada started with marriage equality and they had no residency requirements, there were American couples going up to Canada to get same-sex married. Mm. I remember there was a, a like a shuttle between Toronto and New York where people were flying up to get married. I think that's what Edie Windsor did with yes. Fire. Yeah. That's, that's what they did. And, and uh, a judge I know who was active with the International Association of Gay Judges, he knew a gay judge in Toronto who was standing by to do oh, these sure. marriages. Yeah, no, it, was really, it, was, it was really wonderful. Uh, but that means that theoretically, theoretically, a same-sex couple in the U.S. who wanted to marry could have married. And I think uh, we're, we're going to be relying on the willingness of courts to entertain the argument that they didn't marry because it wouldn't have made any difference back in their domiciliary state because the states weren't recognizing it. And because under the Social Security Act, it's the domicile states law that determines whether you were legally married for purposes of uh, the surviving spouse widower's benefit. Uh, so, and then there's the pro se case. And I think, you know, it's, it's always interesting to see a pro se uh, litigant who wins because that's a rarity, you know, uh, Although uh, those of us who are who listen to this podcast, who are lawyers, know that law is not rocket science, but especially when it comes to procedural and jurisdictional issues, they could be relatively complicated uh, for a lay person to know how to establish that they have standing and to sue the right defendants and to meet the statute of limitations and to file uh, a complaint that has factual allegations sufficient to survive a motion to dismiss under the pleading standards. Uh, this is what trips up lots of prisoners in litigation that's uh, frequently pro se. So at any rate, this guy managed to uh, to win, uh, which was uh, really interesting. It's the case is Driggs. And uh, Mr. Uh, well, after they married, both parties are named Driggs. <laughs> they decided to have the same last name. And the court opinion does not indicate what the maiden name was. So it's Joshua and Glenn Driggs. Uh, they uh, were together as a couple since 1972. They first met in Michigan where they lived together. They moved around to various places. They ended up in Arizona. Uh, in March of 2014, they went to California to get married. Uh, then uh, returning to their residence in Arizona where Glenn died in June of that year. So they got married in March, he died in June. At the time they married, Arizona did not recognize same-sex marriages. But later in 2014, a federal district judge ruled against Arizona in a marriage equality case, which they decided not to appeal. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting because it's whether the state recognized the marriage. And the claim here, uh, uh, part of the claim for the Social Security Administration was at the time that Glenn died, uh, although they'd married in California, the state of Arizona didn't recognize it. And furthermore, he died less than nine months after he got married. So, you know, it's a whole ball of wax there running against him. But uh, the magistrate judge, uh, no, this is the district judge. Uh, okay. The magistrate was the Lambda case. This is the district judge, the federal district judge, said, I think there's an equal protection violation here. I think you can't rely on uh, Arizona's refusal to recognize because its refusal to recognize the marriage was unconstitutional under right. Obergefell. Uh, and even though Obergefell wasn't decided in 2015, it has generally been considered as a retroactive case 
because it was declaring a right under a constitutional amendment that was adopted after the Civil War. And the amendment's always been there. So it's like the court found that the amendment has this effect, and so it has to be retroactive, really. Uh, so uh, in this case, uh, the judge said, yeah, the only thing to be determined now is the amount to be paid. To. Uh, so, uh, you know, the question is, is the Trump administration going to appeal these cases <laughs> and delay these people getting, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the decision in the case from Washington is just asking for more data. So there's nothing to appeal yet. These two decisions from Arizona, uh, there is something appeal. Uh, we do have judgments here. Uh, so uh, it's possible that the administration and it's possible that everything could change if we get a Biden administration. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. All right. Let's not let's not tempt fate here. Um, okay. So let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about um, foster care discrimination. All right, we're back. As listeners to this podcast know well, the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear a case called Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, which involves a Catholic organization that wants a constitutional right to turn away LGBT foster parents. While we will not be discussing that case today, though who knows, we may end up addressing it to some degree. Art, will you bring us um, the case that uh, it's out of South Carolina, I believe, involving a similar issue where a lesbian couple is seeking justice? Okay, and, and this is a different sort of case uh, because the government is the defendant here. Uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and uh, the state of South Carolina. The problem being here that uh, the Trump administration has been granting waivers to states. And it, it seems that uh, under, under the rules uh, by which uh, these foster care uh, issues are, are governed. If uh, you know, if any uh, federal money is going, they have to comply with certain federal requirements. And one of them is not to discriminate uh, based on sexual orientation. Uh, and uh, they've been willing to grant waivers for religious objectors. Uh, and it seems that in South Carolina, South Carolina's own rules uh, prohibited sexual orientation discrimination by licensed agencies that were handling foster care and adoption services. Uh, so a lesbian couple, Eden Rogers and Brandy Welch, who are the lead plaintiffs in a Lambda legal lawsuit, uh, they had uh, gone to Miracle Hill Ministries, a state licensed child placement agency, the largest such agency in South Carolina, uh, looking to uh, become foster parents. And Miracle Hill said no. Uh, we don't care if you're married under state law. You're a same-sex couple. It violates our religious beliefs. Uh, and uh, they were uh, seeking a remedy from the state. Uh, in fact, what was uh, about to happen was that Miracle Hill's annual license was up for renewal. And uh, it was clear, uh, just looking at their website, uh, that they were going to turn away people not just if uh, they were same-sex couples, they wouldn't turn away any people who basically weren't evangelical Christians. They weren't providing these services for Jews or Muslims or you know anyone else, Catholics. Mm. Uh, and so the agency told them, we, we're not gonna give you a regular renewal of your license. 
we're just going to give you a uh, temporary renewal uh, while we negotiate with you about changing your policy. Uh, and in the meanwhile, in the meanwhile, uh, the governor, alerted to what was going on, contacts the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the state requests a waiver so that they can authorize this agency to discriminate without violating federal rules. Yeah. HHS, of course, grants the waiver pursuant to an executive order that Trump issued like uh, back in 2017, saying yeah. that federal agencies should uh, provide the maximum play to free exercise of religion and all their, I remember and all their that. activities. Yep. Yeah. So uh, they give the waiver. So the governor turns around and he issues an executive order saying that the state agency that runs this program must uh, effectuate the waiver uh, and, and allow agencies uh, that object to uh, providing services uh, to anyone based on their religious beliefs are entitled to do so. Yeah. Right, so now Lambda comes in with this lesbian couple and they file suit against the Department of Health and Human Services and the governor and the state agency. And they want a declaration that this waiver is unconstitutional. And of course the defendants move to dismiss and they say, first of all, they say this couple does not have standing to bring this suit because uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has not, not denied them any services. And because the state agency has not denied them any services, they should be suing Miracle Hill Ministries. Mm -hmm. But they're saying that the government's grant of the waiver has uh, caused an injury to them. It's a, it's a stigmatic injury and it's a violation of the establishment clause uh, to, uh, to allow agencies uh, that are performing a state licensed function to discriminate based on sexual orientation, uh, based on the religious beliefs of the agency. And the court said, yeah, you know, they've, they've got a theory there. They've got standing to raise that issue. They have been personally affected by this. Their ability to get these services has been sharply limited because a substantial number of the licensed agencies in the state uh, are religiously affiliated agencies. Uh, there's a, an argument there uh, uh, that uh, this violates the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, that granting a waiver is inconsistent with the statute. <laughs> uh, in terms of the federal government, uh, but they, they also making this equal protection claim. And uh, the court said, as far as the equal protection claim goes, uh, I, I think you can make an equal protection claim based on sexual orientation here, uh, but not based on religion, because your establishment clause claim takes care of that. Uh, and also uh, that, and this is the odd part, this is where I don't follow the reasoning of district uh, judge. Uh, the the idea, this is Timothy M. Kane, who is an Obama appointee <laughs> district judge. Tim Kane? Yeah, Tim, oh, Timothy M. Kane, a different Tim <laughs> Kane. The other one's still in the Senate. Okay, all right. <laughs> this was the last time I heard. Uh, so uh, he said on the, on the idea that there's an equal protection violation uh, based on religion, uh, this is a facially neutral waiver. It applies to all religions. And I'm thinking, well, what about not religion? And no one ever thinks about that, do they? Yeah. And, and what about the fact that in this particular case, this agency, this being given the waiver, is discriminating based on religion against other religions? Right. You know, they're taking a very narrowly focused if you don't go with our religion, that's it. Right. So, 
the judge refuses to dismiss the case and this one will go forward, but I don't think anything much is going to happen on it until the Fulton case is decided. I got a feeling that because there are various challenges around the country on this issue, they're all going to wait to see what the Supreme Court does in Fulton. And it's that's just, scheduled to be argued? Well, it'll be sometime in the new term. They haven't put up the schedule yet for, yeah. uh, for arguments. They don't do that until close to the beginning of the term. But unlike the Title VII cases, I, I, we don't have much hope for that one, do we? Uh, Why would they have granted review in this case if they really, the Third Circuit, you know, seemed to have gotten yeah. it right? Or... Well, the Third Circuit got it right, but I'm sure there were at least four members of the court who disagreed. Right. The yeah. question is whether they think they can snag a fifth member. Yeah, it's always the question. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have an of note for us, Art? I always have an of note for us. Yeah, so this I is knew. this is one of my favorite cases uh, from this issue of Law Notes. It's in the Civil Litigation Notes section. It's out of Oklahoma. And as I say, it's as American as apple pie. If you, as a red-blooded American citizen, disagree with something, you file a lawsuit. Well, Joe Juliana Cree of Oklahoma has been stewing for almost five years about the Obergefell decision. It has just it has disturbed him something terrible. Ooh. And so he got himself down to the federal courthouse in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and he filed a declaratory judgment action against the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. He wants the district judge to declare the Obergefell decision was wrongly reasoned and decided. He wants an order that Oklahoma will not abide by it, that we will not have same-sex marriages in Oklahoma. And he wants it promptly. <laughs> well, the federal district judge, you know, this is a pro se case. He I can just see him. that district judge in Texas. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I, can just see, uh, I can just see him running around from lawyer to lawyer saying, will you represent me? And every lawyer says, I don't want to get disbarred. I'm not going to represent you. Right. <laughs> so, he, so he's going pro, pro se. And he finds himself before the chief judge of the district court in Oklahoma, Ronald A. White, who paid him the courtesy of providing a detailed legal analysis of his complaint explaining why the court had no jurisdiction to rule on the merits of his claim. What he, a says, you, my tax dollars. he says, you don't have standing. You have not shown that you have been personally injured in any way by the Obergefell decision. On top of which, on top of which, federal district courts do not have jurisdiction to overrule Supreme Court decisions. They're binding. And furthermore, Supreme Court justices are personally immune from any liability in case you were looking for liability. You know, to uh, to get Justice Kennedy to pay you damages or something <laughs> for his decision, they're immune. They have judicial immunity. So sorry, goodbye, Joe. <laughs> oh my God! But but what? one one thing that's is struck me as funny is a quote: "Courts have routinely dismissed for lack of subject matter jurisdiction claims requesting the lower courts to review decisions of or compel action by the Supreme Court and its justices." And I focused on the word "routinely dismissed." <laughs> Does that mean that federal district courts frequently receive pro se complaints asking them to overrule Supreme Court decisions? I, who knows? <laughs> Interesting phenomenon. Uh, interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much, Art. And of course, once again, great work on Law Notes. Happy Pride. Thank you for keeping us all up to date. I think it's a tremendous service uh, that you do and, and that the LGBT Bar does by making sure that we keep folks up to date on pretty much everything that's going on every month relating to LGBT rights litigation and policy developments, just things of, of interest. Uh, if it if it has LGBT in there in some way, it runs across your radar and you report on it. So thank you. 
you're welcome. And sometimes it takes some time to get on my radar. So, you know, and, and if we didn't cover something in the June issue, we'll cover it in the July issue. If you, know? If you, if you know a news item that Art hasn't covered, you just, I'm sure he wants your email. Right. <laughs> love to hear Let from readers. Love, love to hear from readers. Same. All right. Well, take care, Art. Happy Pride and, uh, and stay, stay cool. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. So much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Give us five stars, leave a review. It's how other people find us and discover our podcast. Uh, thank you so much. We'll see you back with a special Supreme Court podcast, assuming it comes down in the next few days. <laughs>